right, well, we are in this series called um, Book of Ephesians. We're going to take, uh, you know, some time now in the spring um, to start the series, and then we're going to pick it up again in the uh, middle of the summer. But we want to spend about 12 weeks um, or so in this book, just exploring um, what um, the author, what Paul is saying to us, and some of the, the messages that are in this book for us. Now, Pastor Peter started us off, off last week, and so we're going to continue today. Um, we're also going to continue in chapter 1 because I want to look at the last section in chapter 1 um, this morning. So, But before we dive in, before we look into it, I want to just give us a little overview of this book. Because it's important for us to maybe understand a little bit who the author was, uh, why it was written, when it was written. The book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul. And those of you that maybe know uh, the Apostle Paul or you've maybe heard this, and if you haven't, really quickly... Um, the Apostle Paul at one time, his name was uh, Saul, and he was, he was a man who actually was against Christians. He was actually against Christianity, and, and at that time it was known as the way. And, and so he would go from house to house, and he would kidnap people, and he would pull them out of homes, and he would throw them in prison, and, and awful things were done to them because Paul was determined to end Christianity. He was determined to, to wipe it out, and then on his way to Damascus, God, uh, you know, encounters Paul. Jesus encounters Paul on the road to Damascus, and he is forever changed. And from that day on, Paul becomes an ambassador of Jesus. He becomes one of its strongest defenders in the New Testament, and, and he does amazing things, and, and part of that is his missionary journeys. And so the book of Ephesians is written by a person who at one time was actually against Christianity. Now, that's going to be really important because as you read this book, some of the things that you say, it's going to be like, man, no wonder he's so passionate about this because he's experienced this incredible grace of God himself. Now, the book was written around AD 60. Um, it was written to the entire church community, so everyone that would have been there would have heard it. It would have been read to everyone. The other thing that's often said is that it was written not only to the church specifically in Ephesus, but also to the church in the local community and, and would have been a circulating letter. After Paul's conversion, he made at least three missionary journeys. Some argue that he made four, that his trip to Rome was his fourth missionary journey. But we know that he made at least three journeys. And these were really important, these were intensive, you know. And so on his way home in the second missionary journey, on his way home to Jerusalem, Paul stops in at Ephesus. And he establishes the, the church around A.D. 53. This was a prominent church among the Gentile community. Now that may not, again for us, a lot of that stuff is like, well, big deal. But here's what you need to remember is that when the church started, it was started by mostly Jews. The, the, the original you know, 12 disciples were all Jewish people, and so they focused very much on the Jewish community. And so Paul goes now into Gentile territory, and he establishes this church among the Gentiles. And now, again, we look at that, and we really don't focus on that too much, but if you look at the book of Acts especially, you know this is a really big decision because they have to actually defend this decision multiple times. Peter had to defend it. Paul had to defend it. Why are we going among the Gentiles? Because again, the church at that time wrestled with, can non-Jewish people experience you know, the salvation of Jesus Christ? And obviously they could. And so Paul establishes this church in Ephesus within the Gentile community. Now, a few years after you know, he's done that, he returns 
to Ephesus, and he stays there for three years, teaching and preaching with great effectiveness. Paul clearly, clearly loves this church, and in Acts chapter 20, you see that he has a very emotional farewell. Um, he has to leave, he has to say goodbye to them, and they're all on this beach, and they, they are kneeling down with the leaders of the church, with the elders of the church, and you sense there that there's this very emotional, you know, gut-wrenching experience of having to say good, goodbye to their church father, to their, to their pastor, to their evangelist. So a few years after that farewell, Paul ends up in Rome as a prisoner, and while he's in prison, various people come to visit him, and one of the individuals who comes to visit him is a man named Tychicus. And, you know, and if, if you um, don't know about the guy, you see that he's mentioned a few other times in, in the book of, in the New Testament. But Tychicus was from Ephesus. Yeah, for a dyslexic pastor, that's fun, you know. Uh, and so, uh, you know, but anyway, there it is. Tychicus, I'm just going to say it over and over so I don't say it wrong, but he's mentioned at least, uh, you know, a number of times in the New Testament. He's mentioned in the book of Acts. He's mentioned in Ephesians, Colossians, 2 Timothy, and also Titus. And this was a man who we really quickly begin to understand. Paul had deep affection for this man, a huge appreciation for this guy. And one, a couple of the letters, Paul actually describes him as a dear brother and a faithful servant in the Lord. Paul loved this man, and, and he used him to continue the ministry even while he was not present with them. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus and the surrounding area, and we believe he sent it along with Tychicus to take to the church and to have the letter read within that community. And so this is an interesting thing because this letter that Paul wrote doesn't really contain any theological information. Um, this isn't, you know, the focus of the letter doesn't talk about theological issues. You know, for example, like the book of Romans, which was written very much in line with, you know, just focus on theology and, and those things. The other thing the book doesn't do is it doesn't really write about any issues within the church. For example, 1 Corinthians, when you read that book, there are all of these crazy issues, you know, lawsuits and all kinds of other things that are happening within the church. And Paul writes them and, and he corrects them and he, you know, he challenges them and he gives them instruction. Well, the book of Ephesians is really focused only on encouragement. Paul has really nothing negative to say, and if you read the introduction, you see Paul just loves and he lavishes praise on this church. And so this book was challenged, it was written to challenge them to function as the living body of Christ here on this earth. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read today 15, chapter, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Now before we dive in and read those verses, let's ask ourselves three important questions. How does God want us to go into our, uh, let me start again. How does God want us to go into our Christian lives? Okay, how does God want us to go into our Christian lives? What does he want for our future here on earth? And how would you, or how would he have us continue in our relationship with Jesus? These are important questions because what we need to understand is what does, it, what does God want of us? What is his desire for us? Because I think sometimes we may have an idea of what we think God wants. But in this book, you see Paul outline some, excuse me, some of the important things that God wants us to focus on. God's greatest desire for each of us is not that we, you know, is not stated in terms of income or career or accomplishments. Not that God isn't concerned about those things. But his desire for us isn't weighed by how wealthy we are or how much we've accomplished for him but rather in terms of spiritual growth based on knowledge, revelation, 
and insight. There's something really important for us to understand about that, that sometimes I believe that we view our relationship with God based on you know, terms of how much we have done for him. And what Paul does here is he outlines for us that God is actually very concerned about how much we understand about God through the word of God. So this passage gives us a tremendous insight to Paul's prayer life in relation to the Ephesians, but also emphasizes the role our minds play in processing spiritual maturity. Our brains, our minds, our thought pattern, our thinking is important because the, based on what we think, based on you know, the knowledge that we have is going to determine, most importantly, the faith that we have in God. In today's society, when so much emphasis is placed on feelings and emotions, Paul reminds us of the importance of reliable knowledge and petitions us to turn to the Bible to understand our growth in Christ. So we cannot place our growth in Christ based on our feelings. We must use scripture for our instructions and as a source for how God communicates with each one of us. So in this prayer, you're going to see that Paul mentions God's provisions of power in the Christian life. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. God has not left us to struggle on our own, not left us here to just figure things out on our own. He's given us a spirit, but at the same time, we must focus on walking with him daily and to accomplish all that he has in store for us. So, that's the introduction. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15. He says this, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Remember, this is important, that Paul is writing not from some beachfront hotel. Paul is writing from a very undesirable place in prison in Rome. He's in prison at this moment. He's writing this letter out of a prison cell. In this chapter, Paul reminds them of the blessings that they have in Christ and assures them of his heartfelt prayers for them. Paul's thankfulness and petition focus not on immaterial aspects of the Christian life. But this is something, you know, it's not that Paul isn't concerned about their, you know, uh, material, you know, being how well they're doing, how well they're off and all those things. But what Paul is really concerned about is the spiritual quality of what God has instilled in them. Paul isn't concerned about just their health or their, you know, material things, but he is truly concerned that do they understand who God is in their lives. So Paul thanks them for who, you know, for who they are. And, and look at what he says. He talks about the fact that he is thankful for their faith in the Lord Jesus. So it makes sense then that he begins this section by thanking them for their faith in the Lord Jesus. Hearing of their trust in Christ motivated Paul's gratitude before God. The Bible is clear that faith is important to God and, and Paul expresses this gratitude for their faith in God. If you read Hebrews chapter 11 verses 6 it says this, And without faith it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So regardless of how desperately we might try to please God through our actions or our behaviors or whatever it might be, we cannot please him without faith. Here's something I want you to just 
remember and focus on. What God desires of us is not how much we can do for him, but to what degree we are willing to trust in him. What God desires is not how much we can do for him, but to what degree we are willing to trust in him. And so what Paul does is he says, I've recognized the faith that you have in God, and I am grateful. He's writing to the Ephesians, he says, I am grateful for the faith that you have in God. So regardless of how desperately we may try to serve God in other ways and, and through our behaviors and through our actions, those are important, but what matters most is our faith in God. We are to live every aspect of our Christian life by faith, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It says this, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, that just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now the New Testament word for faith literally means to be persuaded by hearing. To be persuaded by hearing but what you read, what you hear from the word of God, that you choose to place your faith in what you hear. The faith, this faith produces fruit that goes far beyond mere you know, intellectual understanding or outward religious activities. It is not preferring one viewpoint over another or verbally observing a particular doctrine. This faith that we are talking about here and that Paul is writing about, this faith is about absolute confidence in truth received and an unshakable conviction of the power of that truth. So the faith that he's talking about here is not, you know, you know we would say, oh, the Christian faith. He's talking here about a faith that is absolutely confident, confident in the truth that we have received through the word of God and is unshakable in the conviction of the power of that truth. This is something that Paul sees in this church, that they have these two things. They have this confidence and their conviction to follow out what the word of God says. So this is where Paul's prayer for the Ephesians begin. With deep gratitude to God for the firm foundation of their relationship with God. But there's a second part to that. Paul is also thankful for the Ephesian believers in the area that he mentions. Not only that they have faith in God, but also about their love for all God's people. Paul has already mentioned this in verses 4, but he mentions it again because it must have been something that was very evident in this church, that this church loved one another. That this church had a deep love for all God's people. And obviously, Paul himself is a recipient of that because Tychicus is over there, you know, sharing about the church and bringing blessings to him and sharing, you know, maybe the experiences that the church is having. And so here it is evident for Paul that this church has a deep love for God's people. This message of love is sprinkled all throughout the book of Ephesians and we see a, a wonderful balance here in Paul. On the one hand, he expresses how much they love each other, but at the same time, at the same time, Paul recognizes that we as believers are capable of even more. That the limitations of God's love are not yet met. As God has loved us, we are able to love others. So each of us has only begun to explore the possibilities of the love that is made possible by the grace of God and it was demonstrated through his son Jesus Christ. So although Paul is thankful for their love, he challenges them in the same way to continue to grow in this area even more. This love was not to be limited or shown only in artificial worldly standards. This love was to be based on the example that Jesus gave them. 
And this would have been, there would have been a massive contrast between the love that the Ephesians were showing one another and the love that was seen by the Romans. The Roman Empire at that time was very much about self-love. It was about self-indulgence. It was about, you know, making a name for themselves and conquering and conquering where the Christians would have loved in a much different way, where they were giving, where there was self-denial, where there was allowing other people to, in a sense, have a position over them because what mattered more was not yourself but loving on other people. So how often then do we pray and thank God for our fellow brothers and sisters in this way? So how often do we pray that, you know, that, you know, that we would see them grow in their faith and have a love for one another? Because so often within a church, instead of doing that, there's infighting, there's concerns, there's, you know, bickering and those kind of things. And so it's such an important message for us here today. So let's continue in this section. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17. He says this, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom, revelation, so that you may know him better. I want to just pause here for a moment because I need to kind of make a confession. As I read that this week, I was, I was, kind, I was extremely convicted. Not just kind of, I was extremely convicted. Because here's, here's one thing I have to just admit to and acknowledge. That I don't remember the last time I've prayed that way. And that's not to say that as your pastor, I don't pray for you. I pray often for people, for their healing, for, for their marriages, for, their, for even their spiritual lives, for, for financial concerns, for children who, who may have, you know, wandered from the faith or for parents who have wandered from the faith. It's not that I don't pray for my congregation or that I don't pray for you. But when is the last time that I have prayed that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that, so that you would know him better. Maria and I were talking about this this week quite a bit. And one of the things that I just had to acknowledge to her is that, is that I've had to come to accept the fact that my prayers have sort of gone into almost like a repetitious mode. I have like this sort of a certain approach to how I pray and, and I catch myself sort of going into that mode over and over just kind of repeating the same kind of prayer again and again. And what Paul does here is he, he's praying not for their well-being. He's not praying, but he's actually asking God, would you give this church, would you give my brothers and sisters in Christ wisdom and revelation, not so that they would know or feel better, but that they would actually get to know God better. And what was most important to Paul was that the congregation would understand who they are in Christ. God is not against us asking for our material needs or requests or desires. He, he's not concerned about us even asking for some of our wants. He tells us that we should ask in his name and he would give it to us. But unfortunately, if you're like me, you fall into a pattern where you begin to pray in a more shallow way than you should. Where your, your prayer is focused more on those earthly needs, more on those physical needs Instead of asking God to reveal to people and showing them who he truly is to them. So unlike many of our prayers today, Paul's prayer revolved around the Ephesians believers' ongoing understanding and knowledge of their wonderful heritage in Christ. Paul's prayer for them is to know who they are in Christ. And then he continues in verse 17. 
He says, I pray, or I'll read verse 17 again. I pray, asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all the rule and authorities, above, the, above power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to the head of over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That is who Paul wants the Ephesians to know. That is what he wants them to know about who their God is. So Paul prays these three very specific things, and let's just look at them really quick. Number one, Paul prays that each might know the hope to which he has called you. Paul's like, I want you to understand that you have hope. I want you to understand the hope to which you have been called. The word hope here does not refer to some wishful longing for something better in the future. Biblical hope is confident assurance that the future will be as God has foretold. We know where we are going. We know how the story ends. We know that if we have placed our life in Jesus, that we will one day spend eternity in him, that hope is secure. So regardless of whether we are facing trials or troubles, uncertainties, sorrow, whatever, whatever we may be experiencing on this earth, Paul prays and he says, I want you to know. I want you to know the hope for which you have been called. Number two, Paul prays that they may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people. In his holy people. Each person who has placed their faith in Christ is in a position to receive an indescribable inheritance. Far above any wealth here on this earth. We have become joint heirs with Christ. And that one day we will receive our inheritance. So Paul says, I want you to know this. I want you to remember this. I'm praying that whatever you are going through, that you will know the inheritance that is waiting for you. So if this is what is in store for us, then why do we so often demean ourselves when God thinks of us in terms like these? Then third, Paul prays that they might know his incomparable great power for us who believe. Paul's desire here is for the believers to never forget that they are engaged in spiritual warfare. That we are up against a battle and against a power that we in ourselves cannot defeat, but Jesus rose from the dead and so we have victory in him. The, the battle that we are up against is our own battle, but Christ has won for us, and we can claim victory in Christ. So regardless of the hopelessness of the despair you and I may face, God is still in control. He won. Now I'm going to take you back to the, to the crucifixion. At the crucifixion, I'm sure Satan thought he won. When he saw Jesus breathe his last, 
And they saw him take him off the cross, and, they, and he witnessed how they wrapped him up, and then they put him in a tomb, and then they rolled the big stone in front of it, and then they had the audacity to even put guards in front and a seal on front. And Satan must have thought, I have absolutely won. And we know Jesus rose from the dead. Sin defeated. Death was defeated. And Paul says, I want you to know. I want you to never forget this incomparable power that lives in you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. Paul's prayer for them is such an important one because I think sometimes we can forget this. But here's the thing. He says, I want you to know this, that Christ was raised from the dead. But look at what he says in verse 20, the last part. Not only was he raised from the dead, but he was also seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authorities, powers and dominion and every name that is invoked. Not only in this present age, but above all names that is to come. God placed all things under his feet. Have you ever thought of that? Your hopelessness, your despair, your marriage, your finances, your whatever is placed under the feet of Jesus. He has victory over all of those things. And so Paul is challenging the church here. Remember what God has done for you. Remember the power. Remember the authority that you have in the name of Jesus. So Paul's prayer shows that he knew that if believers really understood the power that is theirs in Christ, they would experience his power and his triumph in all areas of their lives. So this is a brief glimpse into the prayer that Paul prays here for them. The question is, what then is the key to victory? The key to victory is the knowledge, the understanding, and the wisdom that God reveals and that we add that to our sincere faith in Christ. You cannot only have faith. You need to study the word of God. You need to know in those moments when your faith is tested, in those moments when you are maybe going to struggle with doubt, you're going to need to know the word of God. And Paul's prayer here for you is that you would understand who you are in Christ. That you would understand who God is to you. Because if we don't, if we do not take time to focus on those things, we will begin to have a faith that feels that it's not rooted in anything. And that is a faith that is not strong. But when our faith is rooted in the word of God and who God is in our lives, we will have the power to over, um, withstand whatever challenges we may experience. So I want to close with two challenges for us this morning. Number one. Would you consider, would you consider today changing how you pray for your fellow Christians? Instead of just praying for their well-being, instead of just praying for their material, you know, needs, not that those aren't important, but would you consider also praying the three things that Paul prayed? Number one, pray that they might know the hope to which they have been called. Number two, pray that they would know the riches of his glorious inheritance that is in God's people. And number three, would you pray that they would know his incomparable great power for us who believe. I want to challenge us today to consider praying that maybe for our spouse, maybe for our children, maybe for ourselves, and definitely for one another. That we would begin to pray and say, God, 
My son is struggling. My daughter is struggling. My wife is struggling. My husband is struggling. My friend is struggling in their relationship with you. So God, this morning, would you remind them of the hope that they have in you? Would you remind them of the riches of this glorious inheritance that is theirs? Would you remind them of this incomparable great power that is available to them? They are not alone. And I trust that if we would begin to pray in that way for one another, we would begin to see ourselves understand the word of God and who we are in Christ and who God is to us in a new way and that would deepen our faith and our confidence in him. And then number two, I want to challenge us as a church to continue to stand firm in what Jesus has done for us. His victory is our victory. We have victory, dear one. We have victory in Christ. We may at times feel defeated, but we are not defeated. This morning, the worship team um, led us in the song called Glorious Day. I want to read to us this morning the, the bridge to, uh, for us. It says this, I need a rescue. My sin was heavy. But chains break at the weight of your glory. I needed shelter. I was an orphan. You called me a citizen of heaven. When I was broken, you were my healer. Now your love is the air that I'm breathing. I have a future. My eyes are open. Because you called my name. I ran out of that grave. I hope this morning that you would believe those words. Now, I understand. They're trying to get you to dance. They're trying to get you to clap. And we're just not really into some of that. I, I mean, come on. Come on. I understand. Some of you are like, man, I almost started shaking my hips. This ain't good. This ain't good, you know. So your response is your response. But here's what I'm asking you to do this morning. As they sing that song with us again, would you at least believe these words? Would you leave here today with just confidence, with just absolute confidence in who you are in Christ? So let's stand. Let's sing.